Revelation chapter 12. We have been studying through the book of Revelation. We have arrived at chapter 12 last week and went through the first part of chapter 12 together. And today we're going to take the second part. There's no way I'm going to be able to finish it today. So we'll just take the next part. But as we return to Revelation chapter 12, I want you to remember that this chapter and through chapter 14 are not chronological in the order of Revelation. They're looking back at the tribulation period from another point of view in order to fill in the blanks with more of the backstory. <clears throat> and last week we saw the introduction of the two participants in the great conflict through history, Satan and Israel, as the great conflict on earth. And we're going to continue that theme of the great conflict today. But we're going to read, starting at verse 7 this morning, down through verse 12. 7 through 12. So it's beginning in verse 7 of chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 of Revelation, the Bible says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brother is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. We're going to stop there, and let's just have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at these verses together. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, and now as we sit and submit ourselves to your teaching, Lord, we ask that your spirit would do his work in us, that he would bring understanding to our hearts and minds. And so please remove distractions right now, either physical or mental. Help us to focus on what you have for us today so that we can learn from you and from your word and be challenged by your truth. Lord, I pray that you would use me and fill me with your spirit now. Just speak through me, give me wisdom, and help me to speak your truth so that we all may be edified and exhorted by you today. And we'll give you the glory for what you're about to accomplish now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> all right. As we come back to chapter 12, remember last week we looked at Satan and Israel, the great conflict of Satan against Israel all through history. And the big conflict really is that Satan has been trying to thwart God's plan through all of history, and we got a little bit of a picture of that with Israel, this first sign that John saw in the heavens, um, depicted by this woman who is pregnant, about to deliver, and the one that she was to deliver was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and so Satan wanted to destroy that plan, and yet God spared Israel, God spared the Messiah, God blessed the Messiah in his work on earth, and then as Jesus went to his death and after his resurrection, he ascended up into heaven and God brought him back to heaven and exalted him because of the work that he had done. So we have that introduction to this ultimate conflict. 
And here, as we get into the second part, what we have is the next phase of this conflict. Um, And it really is in several stages as we go through the rest of this chapter. First, what we have here in this section is Satan is cast permanently out of heaven. And once he does, uh, once he is cast out of heaven, he goes into full battle mode on earth. And we're going to see that in, in the passage today. And especially his attacks come preeminently against God's chosen people, Israel, during the tribulation period. We've seen a little bit of that. We're going to see some more of that in chapter 12. And then thirdly, God delivers his people from that all-out assault of Satan against them. And that's what we'll see in the rest of chapter 12. But there's one thing that needs to be made clear that Revelation makes very clear here in chapter 12. And that is there is a real devil. Now there are a lot of people who think Satan and the devil are just a made up idea by religions and religious people to scare people into becoming religious. Because if you don't follow God, Satan is going to get you. Satan is real. He was a real created being by God. He's an angel of light, as described in Scripture. He has fallen from heaven in pride, and he is the originator and beginning of sin. He brought it into this world. He deceived Adam and Eve, and now he wants to deceive us and bring us down as well. So Satan is real. We see that here. His attack against God's plan and against God's people is real. And the Bible reminds us of that over and over. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't just put on God's armor because it's good for us. We put on God's armor because we need it in order not to be defeated by Satan. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, Peter warns us, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And believe me, the absolute evil that defines the character of Satan does not take prisoners and hostages. He is out to destroy. And that's what he wants to do to us. And so we need to be aware of his working. And we'll see a little bit of that in in Revelation chapter 12 today. But Jesus himself acknowledged the existence and the presence of Satan on earth. So there's no doubt about the existence of Satan. He is a real being he is in the, de- the, the head of the demon world, and he wants to bring all of us down. And so as we come to this section in, John cha- I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 12, we get to see with John a vision of this last part or the next part of the great conflict between Satan and God's people. And here we have two scenes. In the first scene, in 7 through 12, it's the last great battle in heaven where Satan is permanently cast out. And then in in verses 13 through 17, there's the last gasp efforts of Satan on earth to destroy God's people. We're not going to get to that part today. Okay, We'll, we'll come back and revisit that next week. But today, we're looking at this war in heaven that's talked about in verse 7. So verse 7 starts and it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So here is this war that takes place in heaven. Now remember, this is a look back at the periods before where we are chronologically near the end of the tribulation as we're in the seven trumpet judgments, about to release the judgments that come out of the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet was already blown. 
But we've seen this background information in chapters 11, chapter 12 now. We'll see some more in 13 and 14. But this is looking at the great conflict in history. And here a war breaks out in heaven between Michael and his angels and between Satan and his angels. Now, Michael, just in case we don't have all the information on him, is an archangel that is named in heaven. He is, if you will, the leader of God's angelic army in this battle because he's named specifically here. And he's going against Satan, that old dragon, and his hosts. Now remember, a third of the angels fell with Satan and now are the demonic forces that oppress us. And in the tribulation period, when this battle takes place, um, we have not just the demons that are present on earth, but remember in the fifth trumpet, we had the swarms that came out of the abyss, the demonic locusts, as it were, that came out of the abyss that are now on earth. And then the 200 million army of demons that come on horses to kill one-third of the earth's population. Now they are present as well. So the earth basically is swarming with demons and, and Satan's hosts. But they go against Michael and, and the angels of heaven. Now we know that since only a third of the angels fell, that two-thirds are still uh, faithful to God. And so Satan is outnumbered. That should be a, 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 a comforting thought for us. Satan is outnumbered and outpowered, not just because of the angels, but because he's going against Almighty God. If Satan didn't have any angels, he could still defeat, I mean, sorry, if God didn't have any angels, he could still defeat Satan, okay? But here we have this picture of Satan coming against Michael and all of the angels fighting against each other. Now, Michael has been introduced to us in Scripture before, and Michael is referred to in Scripture as the defender of God's people, Israel, specifically. If you go back to Jan Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying and fasting for three weeks in the context of Daniel chapter 10. That's how it starts off. And he's basically praying for when God is going to deliver his people because he's already promised 70 years in exile and in slavery, and then they're going to be released. And Daniel's praying and saying, 70 years is up. Is it time? And he's waiting for this answer for three weeks. Eventually, an angel comes in answer to his prayer, and the angel explains to him he would have been there sooner, but he was delayed by what he described as the prince of Persia. Now, that word prince in Daniel refers to angelic hosts. And the, the angel or the prince that delayed the angel from coming to Daniel was a demon, ruled over by Satan, controlled by Satan, but he was assigned to the area of Persia. And so this angel that came to um, Daniel was delayed by this prince of Persia, or the angel of Persia, the demon, if, if you will. And he tells Daniel that he finally was able to overcome this demonic angel when Michael, one of the chief princes, or one of the chief angels, came and helped him. And that released him from this battle, so he was able to come and bring Daniel the answer that he was looking for. Then at the end of Daniel chapter 10, the angel tells Daniel he must return to fight the prince of Persia again. And then afterwards, he's going to fight the prince of Greece. Those are demonic forces that literally control those governments. Okay? So they are all under Satan's control. When we say that the kingdom, Satan is the, is the prince of the kingdoms of this earth or the prince of the world, that's what it means. He is the angel that controls the kingdoms of this world. And in Daniel chapter 10, we have two references, the prince of Persia, 
the prince of Greece, or the angels of those countries that are demons over those countries. But Michael is involved in that fight. And at the end of Daniel 10, the angel that comes to Daniel explains that Michael is going to continue that fight, and he describes Michael as your prince or your angel, signifying that Michael's specific job, if you will, assigned by God, is to watch over Israel in particular. Okay? In Daniel chapter 12, there's more description about Michael. And it says, at, the time, at that time, talking about the end times, the tribulation period, Michael shall stand up, and the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at thy time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And so Daniel gets this revelation from God about the tribulation period, that Michael is going to fight for Israel in that time period. Now, not all of Israel who are alive during the tribulation will be saved, but the remnant will be. And it's partly on behalf of Michael's intervention in protecting them against the wiles and the attacks of Satan that we can attribute that to. So here, Michael, in Daniel 12, is called the great prince which standeth for thy people Israel. So he's the, the, if you will, the guardian of Israel. That's who Michael is. And so as we see him introduced here, waging war against Satan and his demons, his primary goal is to protect the remnant of Israel that will be saved at the end of the tribulation. Now, there's a war here. Michael and his angels are waging war against Satan and his demons. I want to point this out. Many people think that Satan is the counterpart to Christ. Satan is not the counterpart to Christ. Satan is a created being. Christ is not. He is God. Okay? So Satan is not Christ's counterpart in the evil realm. If you want to pick a counterpart, probably Michael would be Satan's counterpart because they're both created angels and they've both been given power over different realms. Okay? But now these two are leading the battle against each other. A few commentators have asked this question about this great battle, and we're going to try to answer some of them today. First of all, when does this battle take place? Because we've kind of gone back in history. Remember last week, we went all the way back to creation to look at when this battle started and what it was. And here is a war that breaks out. The word here that means to break out or to happen means it started at this point. It doesn't mean it's been going on and now John just notices it. John says this war started. So we using that word, in the Greek it's called there came to pass or there arose. So it's at this time, using that Greek word or the Greek terminology here, we're looking at a specific battle between the angels that takes place during the tribulation period. And this is an intense battle like none of us could ever imagine. First of all, they're not people, all right? So they don't die. There's not bloodshed here. These are spirits battling each other. Now, how do they do that? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how those battles are waged in the, in the spiritual realm. But this is a big, huge battle like we could never imagine. Remember the numbers that we're talking about, hundreds of millions. The earth has never seen a battle like that. But this is the battle that's being waged here. And there's sufficient evidence here to place this 
um, at, during the, the tribulation, and probably it ends, as we get into the results of the battle, at the midpoint of the tribulation. All right, and I'll explain that in just a minute. So there, that's when the battle takes place, probably during the tribulation period. The second question is, where does this great battle actually take place? Some commentators believe that the battle takes place not in the throne room of God. The Bible says it takes place in heaven. It says, a, a battle, a, a, I'm sorry, there was a war in heaven. Now, the word heaven here can have two meanings, right? Because as you read through scripture, there are two heavens talked about. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens there describe outer space, okay? It also describes our atmosphere. So outer space becomes the second heaven. Our atmosphere is the first heaven. The the outer space is the second heaven. John, I'm sorry, Paul talks about in um, one of his epistles about being taken up to the third heaven. The third heaven is where he saw the throne of God and the angels around it. And he said, and I saw things that man is not permitted to speak. So there's three levels, if you will, of heaven. There's the atmosphere, if you want to call that heavens. Then there's outer space. Then there's the throne room of God, which is ultimate heaven. Okay? And the question is, which heaven does this take place in? Well, Some commentators believe the battle takes place not in the throne room of God, but in the second heaven, in outer space, okay? That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about the third heaven where God is. The second heaven is this outer space or the universe, okay? In fact, John MacArthur says this, describing the rapture of the church, that the Apostle wrote this, "...for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout." with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And he says on those verses, possibly as the raptured believers pass through the realm of these princes of the air, the demonic hosts, um, the prince of the power of the air and his demon hosts will try to hinder their passage, and that may be what triggers this battle with Michael and his holy angels. Now we know the rapture takes place right at the beginning of the tribulation. Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air, and his realm is the earth and all that surrounds it, including outer space. He operates in outer space. In fact, if you want to do an interesting study, do a study of UFOs and aliens as demonic forces. I'm not going to get into that, but there's a good possibility. So some theologians believe that this battle will be waged in the realm of outer space, what's called the second heaven not in the throne room of God. Others believe that it will take place in heaven itself, in where the throne room of God is, because Satan has access to the throne of God. We know that, because in verses 8 and 9 it says, He prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast to the earth, His angels were cast out with him, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So Satan has access to God's throne. We know that. It says that right here, that he's in God's throne room accusing the brethren before God. So I can't say that Satan is not allowed in heaven. In fact, we have several instances 
where Satan is described as being in heaven. The book of Job starts with Satan coming before God's throne with the sons of God, it says, other angels, to accuse Job before God. And you know the story, how he comes and he says, well, Job only worships you because you blessed him. If you take away everything, he'll turn and curse you. And God says, okay, you can touch everything except his life. And we know the story of how Job went through immense trial because of that. But Satan goes before God's throne to accuse him. In Zechariah chapter 3, Satan accuses Joshua the high priest in Israel of sin in the presence of Jesus Christ before Jesus comes to the earth to be a man. Before Jesus came to be as a man, he existed and dwelt in heaven. And so when Satan accuses Joshua the high priest to Jesus Christ, he's in the heaven of the throne room of God. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus tells Peter that Satan desires to sift him like wheat. The result of that is Peter's denial of Christ. Now, Satan has to get permission to touch any believer or follower of God. And he can only do that by entering the throne room of God and seeking his permission, as he did with Job. And here he got permission to sift, if you will, Peter, so that he denies Christ. So Satan does have access to the throne room of God up to this point, as we see in this passage and in other passages. So the question is, is it outer space or is it the throne room of God that this battle takes place? And the answer is, yes, it's one or the other. There's no definitive answer. We don't know that. We can speculate based on scripture, but we don't have an answer. We know it says heaven. That's what we have to accept. Beyond earth, possibly in the throne room of God. The third question is this. Why does this great battle take place? Now, remember, we've already seen Satan's attempts to thwart God's plan through history on earth, okay? He doesn't want Jesus Christ to come. He doesn't want redemption to happen for mankind. And he does everything he can to stop it. And even as we enter the tribulation period, Satan is still attempting to thwart God's plan and short-circuit what God is going to do on the earth. Now, some commentators suggest that this battle may have started as the church is raptured from the earth. I read from John MacArthur. He suggests maybe it was the rapture as, as believers pass through the realm of outer space or through the spiritual realm that triggers this battle where Satan tries to hinder their passage of the church into heaven. And remember also the tribulation begins the 70th week of Daniel where God returns his focus to his chosen people Israel, the people Satan wants to destroy so that's possibly why Satan rises up in this battle against the angels, to come and finally destroy Israel. Okay? The other possibility is that Satan knows exactly what is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. He's going to be bound. He's going to be cast into the abyss. The Bible says that, and so Satan knows that. Satan knows that God's time frame, in God's time frame, everything happens the way it is going to happen. And yet he tries to thwart it anyway. And so this is his last-ditch effort to try to accomplish the impossible, if you will, by overthrowing God's will and God's purpose for him. If he can overthrow the angels of heaven, maybe he can overthrow God himself. Now, that sounds crazy. But remember, Satan started by saying, I want to ascend to be like God. That's what caused him to fall in the first place. So 
Satan knows what's going to happen. He's going to lose authority on the earth even. He's going to lose all the kingdoms that he controls when Christ comes to set up his kingdom on earth. And so maybe he's trying to stop that from happening. The commentator David Guzik says this, in a previous scene of conflict between Michael and Satan, Satan wanted to prevent the resurrection and glorification of Moses. Jude chapter 1 talks about how Jude and Michael had a conflict over the body of Moses when Moses died. And so he says Satan wants to prevent the resurrection and glorification of Moses because he know God's, knows that God has plans for him for the resurrected and glorified Moses. And we saw before, possibly, Moses will be one of those two witnesses that God will send to the earth. Satan doesn't want that. And so he tries to interfere. And then David Guzik says, here's another occasion where Satan wants to get in the way of God's plan for the end times. So we don't know exactly what causes this war. We know there is a war. But it's Satan trying to interfere with God's plan. That's what the war is all about right from the beginning. So that's what we know. So the fact is that God has not told us why the war started, where it's accomplished, when it actually starts or when it happens. We know it's during the tribulation period, but we know there is a war. Now I want to look at this war and look what happens. Satan and his angels are fighting against Michael and the holy angels of heaven. And in verse 8, it gives their demise. Here's the victory in heaven. There's not just a war in heaven, there's victory in heaven. Verse 8, and they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So verse 9 tells us that they're all cast out of heaven. In fact, in verse 8, it gives us this reason. It says, they prevailed not. In the New American Standard Version, it says these words, they were not strong enough. Now, that makes sense to us who understand who God is and how he empowers his angels. Satan is not strong enough to overcome God. It's a losing battle. It's a losing battle for anyone who wants to fight against God. So that statement that they were not strong enough or that they would not prevail, they could not prevail, is the truth of the matter. They lost the battle because there was no way they could beat God. And it says, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. Now, again, here's the question. What heaven are we talking about? Specifically, this is the throne room of God, and more specifically, including outer space. This is the second and third heavens that John is talking about. And I'm going to explain that. Verse 9 says they were cast out of heaven to the earth. That means they were restricted to the realm of the earth. They were not allowed anymore to even travel or, or work in the, outer, in the realm of outer space. When this phrase to the earth is talking about the earth and its atmosphere, period. And so now as they're cast out of heaven, God restricts their power and transportation around the universe to the earth. They are, if you will, imprisoned or put in exile on the earth now with very limited ability to go anywhere else. Now you think about what Satan has been able to do up to this point, up to this battle that's being fought. And now in his defeat, he's relegated only to the earth. He has just had his realm shrunken by God. 
the fir- at first, I'm sorry, this is the second expulsion of, of Satan from heaven. The first is when he fell in sin. <clears throat> but when he fell in sin, he was not imprisoned in one place. God still allowed him to have authority and to rule over the kingdoms of the earth and to travel back and forth from the earth to heaven, including through outer space. Now he's imprisoned on the earth. MacArthur says this defeat will mark the end of Satan's reign as the prince of the power of the air because he no longer can traverse that space and he no longer has authority there. And John Walvoord makes this comment, Satan's defeat in heaven, however, is the occasion for him to be cast into the earth and explains then the particular virulence of the great tribulation time. Look down at the last verse we read in verse 12. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. So Satan is cast out of heaven and now is restricted to just the earth. And whoever is on earth is going to feel that wrath because he can't go anywhere else to release it. So he's cast out of heaven to the earth. In describing Satan's defeat here in verse 9, John uses four different references for Satan, or the old dragon as we were introduced to him in the first part of this chapter. Of course, he's called that old serpent. First of all, in verse 9, he says, calls him that old serpent. This is a reference to the Garden of Eden. And it shows that he is the originator of sin, where he first deceived Adam and Eve into introducing, as, as he introduced sin to mankind. And he's an expert in subtlety and treachery. That was the beginning of his, his attempts to thwart God's plan for mankind and for redemption through Jesus Christ, to destroy what God had made perfect. So he's called that old serpent. Then John calls him the devil, or he's called the devil. The Greek word for devil is diabolos. Maybe some of you have heard that word before. Diabolos, it means slanderer or false accuser. That's literally what diabolos means. And that is what Satan does to us in heaven. He slanders us before God. He falsely accuses us before God. Now, you think... Satan's going up there and saying to God, look at all these sinners. They can't be faithful. They fail you every single day. Is that false? No, because we do. Then how is he the false accuser? Because Christ has already paid for that sin. And therefore, Jesus, through Jesus' righteousness, we are seen as innocent and righteous. So Satan becomes a false accuser because he ignores the sacrifice of Christ in redeeming us and in taking care of our sin, and Satan still wants to claim our sin and use it in penalty against us. Christ has washed that all away. And so as the devil, Satan is the false accuser. Then John calls him Satan. Now the word is actually a Hebrew word, Satan. It actually means adversary. That's the Hebrew word for adversary. And we read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, uh, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Satan has been the adversary of Israel right from the very beginning. We saw that last week. We'll continue to see that in chapter 12. And so that's what that word Satan or Satan means, our adversary. And he's seeking to devour us as well. And then in, in verse 9, he describes Satan as the one who deceives the whole world. 
Now, the word for deceives in the Greek can be translated to lead astray. Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies in John 8, 44. So Satan will never tell the truth. Never. His entire intention and character is built around deceit. He wants to deceive people. He wants to lead them astray from God. That is his purpose. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 and 11, Paul talks about the end times and specifically the Antichrist who is controlled by Satan. And he says this, And then shall that wicked be revealed, that wicked one, the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. There's that lying. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. You wonder why people can believe the garbage that's being perpetuated in our media today that's absolute lies. And you go, how can they fall for that? Because Satan is a liar. And those people who are controlled by Satan will believe the lie. It doesn't make any sense to people who understand God and who have accepted God's way because God's spirit is truth. And God's spirit leads us into all truth. But the followers of Satan are led into lies because Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns about false teachers, and he says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, the end times, some shall depart from their faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, to doctrines of devils. Here's the character of these false teachers, speaking lies in hypocrisy. That's how you know a false teacher. Number one, they're a hypocrite. Number two, all they spread is lies. Now, a lie can have a kernel of truth in it. In fact, most lies, most false religions have a little bit of truth in them, but they add to it or twist it or interpret it in a different way to make it not true. And so Paul describes these false teachers. He says they speak lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Here's some examples of what they're going to teach. Forbidding to marry. You wonder why the gay agenda is so strong today and why they don't want to define marriage as between a man and a woman? It's the lie of Satan to destroy God's institution of marriage. And when you get to the end times, we're going to have teachers forbidding to marry. He goes on, he says, and commanding to abstain from meats. Now, these people who are environmentalists and say we shouldn't eat meat because of the environmental effects that it has on our planet, They're false teachers, and they've been deceived by Satan. Now, if somebody makes the choice to become a vegan and not eat meat because they believe that's the right thing, that's fine. But when you forbid others to eat meat, that's false teaching. And it says, And commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. We don't need to be deceived by false teachers, folks. But they're out there. And that is the character of Satan. J. Vernon McGee describes Satan like this. He is to be dreaded as a lion, 
more to be dreaded as a serpent and most to be dreaded as an angel because he's the angel of light and he makes sin appear pleasurable. That's where he traps multitudes today. So just so we know who John is talking about here, there's no question in our minds that he's talking about Satan. Satan is the one who is cast out of heaven. And then in verses 10 through 12, we have the rejoicing over this victory. He says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Here is this loud voice in heaven that rejoices because of the overthrow of Satan, the final defeat and casting down of Satan to the earth. Out of heaven. No longer is he allowed to come before God and accuse the brethren. That's what they're saying. He is relegated now to the realm of the earth where he's imprisoned for the rest of his days, which are not many. So this loud voice breaks out in praise to God, but we don't know who the voice is. It doesn't tell us. It's probably not angels, because angels don't refer to saved people as brethren. It's probably the redeemed who are in heaven at this point. And they're rejoicing now that Satan is finally overthrown in heaven. And their song is this, now has come salvation. This is the final stage and the culmination of the redemptive acts of God, leading up to the glorification of all believers and entry into the millennial kingdom of Christ. Okay? This is the final phase of our salvation. Remember, we have three phases. The past, that we've been forgiven. The present, our sanctification. And the future, our glorification, where we will receive a perfect body to go with a redeemed spirit. And we will live with Christ forever. First, the first thousand years of that forever will be on earth in his millennial kingdom. And so that is what they're rejoicing about. Our salvation, the final stage of salvation, finally is here. And they say, and strength or power. This is talking about God's sovereign power is finally demonstrated in the crushing, the power of Satan, and exerting his righteous power in Christ's reign on the earth. Again, the millennial kingdom. Okay? Christ will literally rule in power over the earth and in strength on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And then again, look at the last phrase, and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. His Christ, the word Christ is the anointed one, the anointed king. When is Christ going to be literally king on the earth during the millennial kingdom? So the rejoicing is Satan's final overthrow in heaven. He's cast down to the earth, and now we are right at that moment where the kingdom literally is at hand. And all of heaven is rejoicing. All the redeemed in heaven are rejoicing because now Satan no longer can accuse their brethren on earth. He says, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So this is a great victory in heaven that no more accusations can be brought against believers in heaven at this point. And we are at, if, if you will, my, my opinion is at the midpoint of the tribulation when Satan is thrown down and this happens. And look at verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now again, we have something spoken of in past tense, like it's already happened, that hasn't happened yet. 
Even though Satan is cast out of heaven, Christ's kingdom is not set up yet. Okay? But in heaven they rejoice as if it had been. Because when God says something is going to happen, it might as well already have, as far as heaven is concerned. Okay? That's the way prophecy is given in Scripture. If you study Old Testament prophecy in Hebrew, Old Testament prophecy is almost always given in past tense or with a perfect tense. It means as if it's been completed. Because when prophecy comes from God, it is guaranteed. And so those in heaven look at it as it's already occurred. And here we have that sentiment. They have overcome already. They overcame. And yet these people are still on the earth fighting Satan for the next three and a half years. But they overcame. And how do they overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 says, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's no such thing as somebody overcoming Satan apart from the blood of Christ. No one is strong enough to do that in and of themselves. The only thing that can overcome Satan, is the blood of Christ. That's why he had to die. And so they overcome him through the blood of the Lamb. No one's going to make it to the millennial kingdom without submitting themselves to the cleansing power of Jesus Christ's blood. And it says they overcame by the word of their testimony. Now here's one of the true marks of a believer. His testimony in his word and action. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but the Bible makes it very clear, and Jesus made it very clear, that those people who claim Christ and then don't live for him, just do their own thing, want their own way, put their hand to the plow and then turn back, fade off when things get hard, or are are attracted more to the world than they are to God, they're not true believers. True believers live a testimony for Christ and speak a testimony for Christ. And you talk about real overcomers, we're talking about believers in the tribulation period here. When persecution against followers of God is escalated to a point that has never before been seen in history. And yet they still are faithful. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33, Jesus said, if we confess Jesus before men, Jesus will confess us before his Father. But if we confess not Jesus before men... Neither will he confess us before his father. These people lived in the worst circumstances and yet lived so that people knew without question that they belonged to Christ. That was their overcoming. Now here's the challenge for us. We're not anywhere near that level of persecution in our world. Are we overcoming in our testimony? What does the way we live say about us as overcomers? Because that's the mark of an overcomer. Someone who, by the word of their testimony, overcomes Satan and the world. And then here's the extent to which they live. The last phrase, they love not their lives unto the death. Did you know the Greek word for witness is martis? It's the word we get martyr. 
So in the New Testament, a witness was assumed to be someone who would be killed for Christ. Because if you lived that way, you would be killed. And that's why they have the Greek word for witness as martis, a martyr. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, we're not talking about just the threat of death in these people. We're talking about certain death for these people if they follow Christ. Truly, they were witnesses in the full sense of martyrdom. Certain death. And yet they were faithful to Jesus Christ in their testimony and in how they lived. True believers and followers of Jesus Christ do not let self-preservation and fear keep them from living as God has called us to live. Here is the people who overcame. This is how they're described. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they were not afraid to die for it. That's a follower of Christ. That's a true witness of Christ. Now, as we get to the end of this section, verse 12 gives us the bittersweet sentiment of the saints in heaven. There is rejoicing, but with the rejoicing comes this sobering warning. He said, verse 12, the voice says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Why? Because Satan is overthrown, because God is going to glorify all his redeemed, because Satan is about to take the throne, I'm sorry, Christ is about to take the throne from Satan. It's all going to happen. So heaven is rejoicing. But look at the warning. Now that Satan is cast to the earth, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Remember the three woes at the end of chapter 8? The first woe was the swarm of demons that came out of the pit. The second woe was the 200 million strong demon army that came to kill one-third of the population. This is the part of the third woe. The last woe will be the pouring out of the seven vile judgments, one upon another as the tribulation comes to an end. But in those woes, Satan is released in his full fury, and the only target he has is those people on earth. And they're going to feel the full brunt of it. And this is why the second half of the tribulation gets so bad. Because Satan and all his demons are now banished to the earth. They're all here. That's how it gets so terrible. And again, there's no way to even imagine how bad it's going to be for people who are still alive at that point. But Satan, during that time, will use the Antichrist and the false prophet to desecrate the temple, to destroy the worship of God, and persecute anyone who is faithful to God or follows Jesus Christ as a true believer. And he knows he only has three and a half years left to do it. And so we have a statement about the last three and a half years, why it's so bad. And as we've already seen in the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments, all demons are released on earth to torment men and to kill a third of the population. And I'm assuming many of them are believers. 
So the last part of chapter 12 that we'll get to next week shows us not only does he direct his wrath at the earth in general, but very particularly at God's chosen people, Israel, to try to prevent any of them from coming to Christ and being redeemed in the end. And we'll pick up there next week. I want to challenge you with this. A real simple question, but a deep question to think about. Do you exhibit the character of an overcomer? Look again at the description. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, not protecting their life even to the death as a follower of Jesus Christ. How would we respond if we were in those last three and a half years? Exactly the way we would today. Because what we are is not determined by our circumstances. What we are is determined by our submission and dedication to the Lord. And the circumstances shouldn't change who we are. If we are true believers, we should be overcomers in the testimony of our word, even to the death. We're going to stop there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we just thank you for your word, the things that you teach us, the challenges that you give us from it. Lord, as you give us these things that are going to happen in the future, as the world is coming to the last stage of his existence, as Christ gets ready to set up his kingdom on this earth, Lord, it's a challenge to us, seeing all these things are about to happen, what manner of men ought we to be. So, Lord, teach us how to live day by day and help us to be faithful in being a testimony of you to those around us, to a world who needs to hear not only of your love but of the judgment that is to come. And so, Lord, give us the strength and make us overcomers. Thank you again for what you've taught us today. We, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to sing just two verses of a hymn, and then we're going to have our uh, church congregation meeting. Um, If you need to leave, go ahead and step out during the hymn. We're going to get started as soon as we're done singing.